As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Dear Nasties, before we start today's episode, we would like to tell you about an awesome platform and app called Castbox. Now, Castbox is an online platform that helps podcasters promote their shows to an audience of millions of people. But the cool thing for you as a listener, though, is that you can use Castbox as an app to listen to all of your podcasts for free. You can download it for free and you can listen to it for free. I'm also using it myself, and one thing I really like about it is that I get all kinds of cool suggestions based on the podcasts that I'm listening to, and I've really enjoyed those suggestions so far, so I really suggest you give CastBox a try. You can download it on Android and Apple, so go ahead, make the download. Now on to the show. She was warned. She was given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. Hi, welcome to the She Persisted podcast. I'm Heather, and today you'll be hearing an interview that I did with Professor Holly Painter from the University of Vermont. Within this interview, Holly and I discussed topics relating to the LGBT community within academia, specifically members of the LGBT community who are also parents within academia. I had a wonderful time talking with Holly, and I think you're going to have a wonderful time listening to the interview. Without any further ado, on to the interview. Holly has been gracious enough to give us her time so that we can have this interview, so thank you for that. Yes, it's very, I'm very happy to be here. So first question, how do you identify within the LGBT spectrum? So in terms of sexual orientation, I identify as queer. And maybe it's, it's easier to start with. And the gender spectrum, I identify as genderqueer, which means that mm. I don't identify as male or female, exactly. Uh, it's sort of, it's a category under the umbrella of transgender. For me personally, it, it, genderqueer can mean that you're, uh, you know, some days you feel one more way, more one way, and some days you feel more the other way. It can mean that you're in the middle. It can mean you're neither. For me, it's it's sort of 
right there in the middle. And so that means that when I'm trying to say what is my sexual orientation, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense for me to say lesbian because that would say I'm a woman who's attracted to women. But since I don't feel like a woman, right. it's better to just say I'm queer, which is sort of my my way of avoiding the question entirely. So then as a queer person, have you had support from friends and family over the years or has that support maybe fluctuated over time depending on different life stages? Uh, yeah. So as a child, I was one of those children that you look back at the pictures and you think, oh, there's a child who is definitely queer. At the same time, I was growing up in a pretty conservative part of the country. I grew up in the Midwest and I grew up in a family that was pretty religious and didn't wasn't exposed to other queer people growing up. And I, I went to a Catholic high school where that sort of thing was, was expressly forbidden. And so I didn't come out sort of officially until the week before I went away to college. My family at this point, I would say is quite supportive. They also went on sort of a journey of figuring out how that was going to fit in all of our lives. In terms of my, my friends, I'm not friends with a lot of people I grew up with for you know, various reasons. I, I moved quite far away to various points, but also for some people that wasn't something that was okay with them. But knowing from that point on that, that I was queer, I, I could choose people to be friends with who were okay. And obviously those were not. I'm very lucky that my, my wife, my partner, uh, we've been with each other since we were 16. And she didn't come out until about 10 years later. But I had a mad crush on her when I was 17. And mm-hmm. I kind of waited in a way. I went ahead and had a life and had partners and all that. And then the day came when it all just sort of lined up. And so I would say that my, my most supportive friend is uh, has turned out to be my wife. That's wonderful. Um, so you said you moved far away. What What's the distance between where you were growing up versus where you ended up going for college? Uh, well, I went to, I, I grew up in uh, suburban Detroit, and then I went to the University of Southern California. After that, I moved to New Zealand. I lived in New Zealand oh. for some years, <laughs> and then um, I moved back to Michigan for a little bit, and then went to Singapore for three years, and just wow. moved back to moved back to the States a year ago, moved to Vermont. Wow, that's amazing. So where you are currently, are you in a supportive public environment? Yes, yes. I um, I was talking to my wife about doing this interview, and she said that I should expect royalties from the Vermont Tourism Board because I have nothing but nice things to say about uh, <laughs> the community here in Vermont. That's one of the reasons we, we chose to move here. We had some flexibility about where we could move, and yeah. we chose a place that was extremely supportive. Have you um, done that as far as the other places that you've traveled, looked for supportive communities before you've gone, or has it been other factors that had you moved to those locations? I don't know that I've really had the option of, of choosing as much as I'd like. I, I, I chose I chose the University mm-hmm. of California, and I had some awareness as a child that California was going to be an accepting place, but I hadn't reached out ahead of time. And, and in fact, I remember the first week of school, the LGBT Association was having their picnic in the first weekend, and they had a huge rainbow flag out on the lawn. And I circled that lawn five or six times and tried to think, if I go and sit down on that flag, everyone's going to know. And I don't, I don't want to out myself to all these people and, and didn't end up going to this picnic because I was, I was too scared. When I moved to New Zealand, by, by that point, I was, I was well out. And there I had a, a supportive community and I was involved with doing research about LGBT teens for the university there. And in, in Singapore, it was a bit, it was a bit harder because we moved there for my wife's job. Uh, she's also mm-hmm. an academic. That's not a place where LGBT people have nearly as many rights or even sort of a cultural understanding of why they exist and, or, you know, the right, the right to exist and, and be respected. So I didn't have very many queer friends there. We had a couple of friends who were queer parents as well, but we didn't have that going in. Going in, we had, we didn't know anyone and we didn't really know how it was going to be. 
You are a parent. How many children yes. do you have and how old? Um, we just have one son. His name is Oliver and he is two. Is he talking a lot? Oh, yes. He's, uh, he, was a, he was a late talker. He didn't say any words until well past his first birthday. And they were beginning to talk about, oh, we're going to have to do testing. And we were getting concerned. But now he just talks up a storm. He doesn't stop talking. My son is four now. He didn't say anything until after 18 months. Same thing. Yeah. He didn't, my son didn't even, he didn't even say mama until 18 months. He just said nothing. He just screamed. That's scary as a parent, especially when they start talking about testing and trying to figure out what's going on. So what's been the most challenging thing about being a parent? Most of my challenges, I think, are the same as everybody else's. I'd like him to sit in his chair and stop licking the recycling and, you know, don't, don't, don't pull that dog's tail and all those sorts of things. Right. But um, <laughs> I think that there's been, there's been some sort of specific things that are specific to being a, a queer parent. In academia, I think we talk a lot about imposter syndrome. And people feeling like, you know, they're not really meant to be there. People aren't taking them seriously or maybe they right. really feel like they're not, they aren't actually a, an academic. And I think there's the same sort of thing for particularly the non-gestational parents, whether they be mm -hmm. you know, adoptive, adoptive parents or, you know, in my case, my, my wife gave birth to my son and Singapore did not allow me to adopt him or to be on the birth certificate. Mm -hmm. So even wow. though I actually stayed home with him for his first year, it wasn't until I moved to Vermont that I could adopt him. And even then, you know, mm -hmm. people sort of ask, oh, well, who's his real mom? Who gave birth to him? And, and that's, right. and that, that kind of can make me feel not as, you know, not taking it seriously. On the other hand, I've always looked very, very young. Mm -hmm. At this point, I'm, I'm 32 and I look kind of early 20s. But when I was in my 20s, I looked about 14. So between the lack of sleep and uh, having a, a small child physically with me, I think do, people do take me a bit more seriously as an adult than they did before he was born. Right. So there's some trade-offs there. But I think, yeah, being a parent has been mainly the same challenges, but a few added legal and right. logistical and kind of, you know, emotional challenges. Have you had issues in like a public setting as a queer parent? Some comment or something? Has that happened? Um, oh, lot, there's always lots of comments. People have, people love to yeah. talk about, you know, other people. And I think particularly when there's a child involved, uh, people feel a lot more like they have a right to, to question you or, you know, suggest behavior right. that might be different than what you're doing. We had, in Vermont, we get the occasional person who ask questions, but mostly they're very friendly. In Singapore, we had more of kind of people wanting to know whose was he. We yeah. gave him, he has my wife's last name because in, in Singapore, that was if she gave birth to him and there was no father present, then it was her last name. Um, but we made my last name one of his middle names so that okay. because I was staying home with him, if there was ever a situation where I had to take him to the doctor urgently or or anything, and I couldn't show any paperwork because he's legally mine. I could show that his middle name was the same as my last name, which is kind of a stretch, but trying to show some relationship. Right. And and I also, I flew with him alone a couple of times and my wife would have to, we had to get a notarized letter for the airlines saying that, and this is, this is true in the U.S. as well, saying that I was not kidnapping him. That's not specific to uh, to our situation because, um, you know, divorced parents, sometimes it's the same thing. But oh, just... Yeah. People, you know, they ask a lot of questions. And even when we were trying to conceive him, there were lots of people who had all kinds of advice that was maybe more or less helpful about maybe we should just find a stranger on the street to have sex with or just, just like creative thinking there. How do you reconcile those instances mentally? I mean, I guess as a, as a queer person, I have dealt with a lot of curiosity and a lot of even more hostility than this. So I think I've just gotten used to it. You know, nobody's 
Nobody's yeah. threatening to hurt us. Most people are just curious. When they ask who gave birth to him, sometimes they're, they're asking it as innocently as like trying to figure out who he looks like and right. trying to figure out which one of us is it that he has the genes of. And, you know, it's not me, but he, he doesn't really look like either of us at this point. So they kind of are like, who, yeah. who, is, right. who does he go with? My wife says the thing that she uh, finds the most irritating is when, because as I said, I look quite young. Occasionally people will ask her if she, if we're both her sons, if both myself and my son are her sons. And wow. she says, how, how old do you think that I am? She's not impressed. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. But for the most part, people people are great, especially here in Vermont. Um, you know, as I said, uh, I took him to the doctor this morning for his two year uh, checkup, and yeah. nobody even asked. He's been there before. I've signed the paperwork before, and right. there was no issue whatsoever. He was really young, but have you started to take steps to help prepare your son for how the world may perceive him or? actively behave toward you as queer parents well at this point we've we're kind of letting the children's books do the heavy lifting we uh you know we got them all all the the titles that appear for different kinds of families and we haven't specifically addressed people potentially being confrontational or antagonistic toward our family i mean among other things moving here was so that he would not experience as much of that there were definitely places we could have gone where that would have been more of a problem but here even in his daycare he's not even the only child who has a different family structure but we do we read him a lot of books that have two female parents or to male parents or you know single parents families with with grandparents that was one thing about about living in Singapore was that he was exposed to a lot of different family structures maybe not in the sense of uh, queer families but intergenerational families and multicultural families but we haven't really started talking to him about those things at this point you know trying to have a conversation with him is I say something meaningful and he says airplane up in the sky look there's an airplane right that's kind of where we are well I'm sure you've already put a little bit of thought into as he ages Mm -hmm. and there's a discussion about sexuality at some point have you thought about how you would let him know that he's supported regardless of sexuality or, or gender identification? You grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Ohio, so and from a very small conservative town. So I understand how communities can be, and yes, um, yes. certain family members can be. I've. What would you do that was different from how things were for you? Well, I guess looking forward, but also thinking about now. I think gender is an issue before sexual sexuality is. A lot of the backlash against the queer community has been, are we transgressing gender roles? And so I think we start there with him. And he's he has a variety of toys and books that represent all the possibilities of what he could be. And if he's mm-hmm. playing with trucks and he's got his doll driving the truck and he's kind of, you know, mixing and matching and whatever he wants to play with, it's not a sharp knife. is right. okay by us. And we've had conversations with our families where we say, I don't want to hear this kind of, oh, you know, he likes trucks because he's a boy or, you know, you can't wear that pink shirt because that's for a girl. And we want to just keep all those options open to him. And he's Mm -hmm. soon going to reach an age where he wants to categorize everybody into their boxes. And that's going to be, I think, challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, But from our end, we're trying to keep everything open that way. We haven't talked to him about sexuality per se. We've started with a sort of very basic, as I said, I took him to the doctor today and we talked with him on a two-year-old level about consent and talking to him mm-hmm. about how if we are tickling him and he doesn't want that, then he can say, stop, we'll stop. And saying, no one can touch your body unless you say, okay, with this exception of I'm taking you to the doctor and I'm telling you that it's okay. The specific person right. is okayed by your parents. And so I started to talk to him about those things and considering it all to be this sort of organic process of never, we're not never going to sit him down and, and say, now we're having the talk. And that talk's going to include, right. it's okay, whatever your sexuality is. I want it to be something that we sort of weave throughout all of our conversations and hopefully there's never a point where he wonders if it would be okay if he were gay straight by male female other but he just always knows that we've 
not always knows in an abstract way, like, oh, we love you, everything you do is fine, but more like we've laid that foundation of, of conversation so that we can keep talking about it and, and expose him to, as I said, we're, we've got all the books and, and kind of exposing him to all different sorts of, of possibilities for himself. Have you, I mean, that's good that you're starting it too. I, I, the one thing that was crossing my mind is my daughter. I don't know what your plans are for schooling. If you're going to do homeschooling or public schooling or private. What, what have, you, have you decided yeah. for your daughter? Well, my daughter is actually five, or well, six now. She just turned six this year, and she went to her first year of kindergarten. And my son, who is four, he started preschool at three because of sensory issues, behavioral, um, emotional issues. And he has longer hair. Mm -hmm. Now, we are still in Ohio, and he's Mm -hmm. in a preschool, an integrated preschool program, and it wasn't very long before he came home saying, mom, you have to cut my hair because I'm a boy. Oh, and I'm like, no, no, we are not. No, you love your hair. Cause he's always loved it as if we, yeah. but he's like, no, I can't have a ponytail as a boy. And I'm like, yes, you can. And so then I had to resort to showing him pictures online mm-hmm. of various men with long hair and any young man that I would see on the street, I'd point out, look, see, he has long hair too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things that we've worked so hard to, yeah. Not even make it an issue for him, and then yeah, all of it that one kid. <laughs> yeah, and then I, and I, I was the little kid who similarly my hair was short, and I had little kids running around yeah. telling me I should get this exchange when I was about four, and go home, mom, what's this exchange? Oh my gosh! Yeah, and, um, and we um, Oliver's in he's in uh, daycare here in Vermont. Um, he has been mm-hmm. for the last year, and one of the yeah. things that we were yeah, we did, we got very, very lucky with our daycare. And it wasn't the yeah. sort of thing where we needed to go and, you know, have a chat with anybody. They just they've been very accepting. It's it's at the YMCA and they've been they've been mm-hmm. great. But you, there is always the one kid whose older sibling told them this or that and they come in and they, they sort of ruin it for everybody. Right. I guess one one thing that we have done the, the sort of conversations about, oh, you can't raise a boy without a father and I obviously I don't agree. But yeah. I do think that society is gonna provide all of these role models of masculinity for him, whether we want society too or not and so if we at home don't necessarily have a a male identified parent and he's going to take it from television and from family role models we're not religious but we actually asked two of our male friends and and also one of our female friends to be his his godparents and the men that we chose are my two best friends and i chose them in part because i think they're wonderful people but also because they both have a sense of masculinity that i think is is not driven by what the culture says it must be. They both have jobs that are engineering physics type things, which, mm-hmm. you know, are maybe more male identified in our culture. Mm-hmm. But one of them is a, a really wonderful cook and um, right. is really excited to show Ali how to cook and things like that. And, yeah. and just, just making sure that he's exposed within his sort of broader family to those influences right. as well. So it's not just us with our, our books at home saying, it's fine that you like pink and have long hair. <laughs> But also that there are these people in his life who also embody that. We'll see. I don't know. We're still at two, so it's all very theoretical. You just got to roll with it as it comes. Yeah, but we have, you know, we have had sort of family members who say, oh, his hair's getting long, or are you sure he needs to be wearing that pink unicorn shirt? And, you know, we say he likes his hair and he likes his unicorn shirt. So as long as that's that's good for him, then that's what he's going to wear. What advice would you wish that more parents knew to help foster a supportive environment for a child who may be questioning their sexuality or wanting to come out to their parents? I guess for younger children, um, you know, everything that I said, but also for older children, I think having friends who represent 
diversity of, of sexualities and diversity of interests, you know, you don't need to go collecting token friends, but there are people in your community who, who are wonderful, who just your child, you know, modeling for your child, you being kind and accepting toward everyone. I think, you know, if you don't have those people in your life, if you're in a community where there isn't much of that, you know, there is media that you, you read a book that had this character, you can talk to your kid about that. I remember when I was um, in high school, someone who surely knew that I was queer talking to me about James Baldwin and, and mm-hmm. just saying, Oh yeah, have you read very much James Baldwin? And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know. And, you know, she was like, I think you'd really like it. You know, you should, you should check this out. And, and then somebody else, you know, started talking to me and just being like, Hey, you know, I've been watching Will and Grace. Cause that was sort of the, the, the TV show at the time that you could name yeah. check to, uh, to sort of show that you were okay enough with gay people that you could handle watching Will and Grace. And I think there's right. plenty of opportunities to do that kind of thing. I think that also you do want to let your kid take their time though. You know, if they're not ready to, to tell you, then all you can do is provide them with the opportunity, but you definitely can't say, Hey, it seems like you're gay. You want to talk about it? Um, because right. you know, they may not be ready. So if we Google your name right now, what comes up is that you're a writer. Well, it's actually, if you Google my name, there's actually, there's two Holly painters who are really? queer writers of the same age. And uh, one is me and one is my doppelnamer who lives in Canada. And we we actually met wow. a couple of years ago um, because really? we had, so yeah, we, well, we arranged to meet. It wasn't, wasn't accidental because oh, okay. we had uh, <laughs> all of this confusion. I get a lot of her email and she'll occasionally get a Twitter shout out for a poem that I wrote. And uh, yeah, so we met up. But yes, I, I am a writer. What kind of writing do you do? So mainly I'm a poet. I published a book actually the same year my son was born and I'm working on various new projects and I'm also I'm writing a book about jobs that are becoming obsolete. So I, a couple of years ago oh, before okay. my son was born, I traveled around the U.S. and I interviewed 50 people who have jobs that oh. are becoming obsolete and took their photos. So I talked to a telephone operator and shoe shiner and bookbinders, all kinds of different, different folks. And I'm writing a book, I'm co-authoring with an economist writing a book about what these jobs sort of say about economic status in America. That's really interesting. When is that scheduled to come out? Um, it has no schedule at the moment. We haven't actually got a publisher yet. Basically, okay. we took a break because my son was born and turned okay. out that was very demanding. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> That's really exciting. You'll have to let us know so we can follow up on that whenever you do That's have a good. schedule. Yeah, I'd love to. It's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really cool book. I've got a, a blog for that right now. It's called obsoleteontheroad.wordpress.com. And that has uh, kind of a little snippets about each person that I interviewed. Awesome. Have you always been a writer then? Uh, yeah, basically. I guess, um, you know, before I knew anything else about who or what I was, I, uh, I loved writing stories. And I was one of those kids who my parents would send me to my room and that was fine. I'd be happy to read their write stories and not come out for a while and not even notice my time out had ended. That's cool. Yeah, as you said, it's demanding being a parent, but have you been able to get any writing done since becoming a parent? And have you noticed a shift in your writing if you have? Um, yeah, I've been getting a fair amount done. Um, as I said, I took a year off when my son was born. And writing, as you may know, doesn't bring a lot of money in. So I also work right. as a freelance copy editor mm. because I wasn't working as a lecturer in Singapore. So I worked as a freelance academic copy editor. And so I, I tended to kind of... I could do that on very little sleep, better than I could come up with anything creative. So for the first year, it was basically a write-off, no pun intended. But the, in the last year, when he's been at daycare, I've been able to get some writing done, and that's been really nice. In terms of subject matter, 
I don't know that, you know, I, I write a poem here or there about him, but it hasn't really been focused on my right. son. Although I do every time I read a children's book with nonsensical rhyming, I do feel like I should probably write a children's book. But if you're not a celebrity, <laughs> that's kind of a difficult market to get into. Maybe I could yeah. be a celebrity rhyming consultant and just help them make there them scan properly. <laughs> that would be good. So for your timeline of being an academic, mm-hmm. you took time off when you were in Singapore. Were you an academic before that then? I mean, you were, um, were you I a was, lecturer before then? I was a lecturer. Um, I've been sort of a lecturer off and on. I was a, an adjunct lecturer in uh, Michigan, and it was 2009, 2010, 11 kind of thing. And then I then I was not a lecturer for a while, and I, I worked mm-hmm. as a freelance copy editor. Well, I was an intern, a sort of older age intern, with a creative writing nonprofit in Ann Arbor, uh, 826 Michigan. Okay. Um, that was mm-hmm. with kids doing writing with them. And I did, I took some time off for writing as well. So it's been sort of off and on. So I started, I restarted being a lecturer um, a year ago here in Vermont. Would you say that since you became a parent during like an off lecturer year, that that may have been a little easier than becoming a parent in the middle of lecturing? Probably. My wife had maternity leave. She's a tenure track uh, academic. So she had some maternity leave, but that was legally mandated in Singapore, but it wasn't very long and it happened to fall during the summer. So that was of much use to her. But at the university I am working for presently, if when my son was born, either my wife or I could take maternity leave or, okay. or I guess other parents leave. Um, so that would right. have been, that would have been an option or, you know, should we choose to have a second, second child, uh, one of us will get some time off. But yeah, having a, you know, a year to take off was helpful. And, and my copy editing is mainly for, non-native English speakers. So I have clients in Asia and Europe primarily. I had mentioned in an email to one of my clients in Germany that I was, that my son was supposed to be born soon. And I was trying to sort of time a paper that he was going to send me. And he responded by asking what would be the duration of my leave that I would take even as a freelancer. He assumed that I would be taking some leave. And I thought about how different that is than the U.S. That, you know, being a German academic, he said, you know, will it be six months or a year? You know, I just want to, I just want to figure out, you know, how to, how to time my papers. And he was, he was sort of the first person to notify me that I was entitled to have some kind of leave. Yeah, that's definitely not something that you think about here in the United States. It's more of a, how soon are you getting back? My wife got a a lot of emails um, while she was on her two month long leave from people wanting to know when she when was she coming back? Could she do this? Could she do that? Wasn't wasn't she doing any work during her leave? So having seen a little bit of the maternity leave and going about academia and even with your wife getting emails, what what, what could you be doing right now? Why aren't you working more? You know, how would you say that that could possibly be, I guess we can't really eradicate it from society, but. We need a cultural shift. It's not just within the, within academia. It's, it's, you know, it's not just that we need to understand our leave. It's we need everyone else to understand that we're in leave. And I think one of the things that's hard is that some of these policies are, they're becoming better, but many of the sort of higher ups didn't go through a system where they had access to those policies. And so it's maybe not understood throughout the institution. And, and it's so different from university to university. And, you know, people have co-authors and nobody really understands what each other's plans are and what they're, what they're entitled to at their universities. And you don't want to let down your co-authors because they're still working. And I think it's going to have to be a cultural shift. I don't know how to make it happen. I'm trying to get my, my wife. I'm like, you should, you should start um, finding some co-authors outside of the U.S. so that should we have another job, they'll at least understand. We talked about you being in academia on and off over the years. What degrees do you have? 
I actually have, I have a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, um, and the MFA for Creative Writing used to be the terminal degree. Mm-hmm. There's since been, now there's a PhD that various, there's more and more universities offering the PhD, and there's more and more mm-hmm. speculation as to how necessary it is to have this and what it prepares you for and whether you're going to need to have one of those to get an academic job in the future and so on and so forth. But certainly for a lecture position, an MFA is fine. My MFA is from New Zealand. So you say there's a debate about whether it may even be relevant to go on for a PhD in that particular field? If you want to be in academia, then it, it's a good sort of thing. But for people who are looking to improve their writing practice, that may not be the best time, way to spend your time. And I mean, some people think of it as if you can get it fully funded, then you might as well take it because that's X number of years of funded writing. And it's difficult right. to find funding for writing. But there's sort of, at the moment, there's a, there's a glut of MFAs and not enough jobs for those people. And so is it just a way of kind of, is it an arms race that isn't necessarily providing us with better teachers, better writing, better anything, and may just speak part of the kind of universities can make some money offering this program or there's a lot of debate about that. Do you feel welcome in academia as a queer person and or as a queer parent? So academia is sort of a a big concept. I would say that, you know, in my sort of location where I am, where I am now, I feel very welcome. I can't think of a more welcoming university than the University of Vermont in terms of queer faculty and queer parents as well. I think that, you know, that's not always been the case. Other other places I've worked, it's, it's, it's been different. Well, you mentioned Singapore wasn't overly, just in general, you weren't, although you weren't necessarily working there, but your right. wife, was, wife was, right? Employed. Yeah. And, you know, we had lots of friends in her department and we, we lived in international faculty housing. So everybody sort of lived within a hundred meter radius of us. Okay. So that was fine. Everyone else in the department was fine. And the university, I think, did what it could. They like they got me insurance. Our marriage wasn't recognized by the country. On the other hand, this sort of, you know, the legal stuff from a on a country level wasn't as supportive. I couldn't have the same dependent pass that a straight married couple would be able to. You know, my wife couldn't sponsor me for the same legal status. That was as a, like on a professional level. You noticed the differences as well, a bit between Singapore and Vermont, for instance. It sounds like it's night and day as far as support level goes. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, but I mean, Michigan I, as well. I, when I was when I was a, a lecturer in in Michigan, there's a very different sort of climate. Mm-hmm. This was this wasn't um, the University of Michigan. This was, this was Detroit area mm-hmm. community colleges, and and uh, mm-hmm. and there, I was sort of cautioned that you didn't want to share those details with your students, kind of thing. The same way that a you know, a, if I were male, I might casually mention my wife at some point. That was not right. something that I should consider doing, and. And there's sort of the sort of like, what do you, well, why do you need to be talking about your your wife? Just don't do that. Um, and that's all fine. But, you know, straight people don't even think about it. And they can, the class that I often teach is the freshman, the first year writing class that uh, one of the first essays or two essays you do is um, kind of a personal narrative essay. And so you're asking the mm-hmm. students to think about what about themselves makes a good story. What about themselves ties into the community? What are the aspects of them that would, you know, they want to share in this essay? And mm-hmm. I find as an instructor, it, it's it's difficult to ask them to be that honest and that open and to think that much about about themselves and their lives without being willing to at a basic level just say a few things about myself. It doesn't feel fair to stand up there and be a robot and, and say no no tell me about this, this story when I won't even you right. know use a pronoun to describe you know, the person I'm married to. That's right. That to me doesn't that particular kind. Of, it's a small class, it's a seminar, it's sort of twenty person workshop class, and it doesn't feel like doesn't feel right to to treat it that way. 
So I find that particularly as a queer person, being able to hear at EVM, being able to share those things in a, mm. a normal, casual manner, seems like a small thing, but to me, it's, it's really nice. And it makes it easier to have a class when you're not constantly policing your pronouns and thinking about what you can and can't say. Absolutely. And that brings up the question of role modeling or representation in the classroom as far as your students go as well. Yeah, definitely. So University of Vermont uh, has uh, quite a large population of queer students, but as I said, I've also taught in places where that's not the case. And I did research in, in New Zealand in a, a part of the country that was quite rural and you know, talked to queer teachers and queer students. And there is this need to have, you know, it's not just having having these role models on television. It's not enough. You know, having having a person who's in front of you who is a real life queer adult who is doing fine who gets to have a family, gets to have a job, gets to have all the things that you hope for yourself, I think is really powerful for students. Yeah. You've mentioned that you consider yourself genderqueer. Although you don't identify as a woman necessarily, mm -hmm. would you would you say that how others have perceived you have impacted the way that you've been treated? Yes, I think so. I'm not sure exactly if this is going to answer your question, but as I said, I look quite young. And so mm -hmm. when I first showed up for my first ever class, I was 24, which is 2009. And so there'd just been the, the new bill passed for laid off auto workers in Detroit to go back to school and get retooled to go back into the workforce. And I was teaching a class that was comprised almost entirely of these students. And so all of them were my parents' age. And I walked in the first day and one of the one of the men was probably about fifty, and he looked at me. He's like, "You've got to be kidding me!" Um, wow. Because I I really did look like a fourteen year old boy who'd shown up to teach mm -hmm. this class. And to him, I think it was actually like humiliating to see this person who was yeah. going to teach him how to fix up his writing and stuff. And so that was sort of my my baseline of academia was this feeling mm -hmm. that everyone was going to look at me and think, "What a joke!" And yeah, yeah. that's not a great confidence booster. But, you know, I think also as I gain confidence, those sorts of things don't bother me as much anymore. My students here, I'm at least older than them. They're 18, 19. And I am sure they perceive me as female, but they do perceive me as mm -hmm. queer. And I don't make any secret of that. My uh, my wife works in the same building as I do. So there's been occasions where I forgot this thing and she actually brings it to me at the beginning of class. And my students are there and they say, oh, this is my wife. And it's all very casual. And they know that I have a son also because sort of talk about these things when we're talking about their narrative essays and what they're going to write. And they're very supportive and they don't have any problems with that. And I think there's a lot of evidence that says that women in academia are penalized for being parents in various ways. And one of them is that their students assume that they're less capable, less, you know, less able to attend to the class because they have this other thing going on. And I think that a queer parents who is perceived as female, as I think my students perceive me, I don't know. I don't know how that interacts with that because I think people, you know, the, all of their different perceptions and stereotypes and assumptions come crashing together, and I don't think they have the same assumptions. So I'm not. I'm, I actually don't know that I'm penalized as much because my, my students they just seem really intrigued. They don't. They don't yeah. know what to make of it, and so they want to know more about it. And you know, end of the semester, I get all these offers to babysit and these kids who. Yeah, I'll, I'll mm -hmm. walk around campus with my son and after I pick him up from daycare and I'll run into my students and they're, they're just so excited. I think it's so cool that I'm a queer person with a kid and they never, you know, thought about how that was possible. You know, they're, they're coming from all over New England and they hadn't necessarily put together that that was a thing that could be. And so in some ways, I think that I actually, I come out on top, of, you know, when you pile up all the different right. assumptions and stereotypes, I actually do okay. When you were talking about the students being younger than you, at least now, mm -hmm. it made me think back to how you mentioned imposter syndrome. As an academic in general, a lot of academics tend to have it, but how would you say that being young looking impacted imposter syndrome for you? 
even if you strip away everything else, have you felt like you needed to do more just to validate who you are because you look so young? I've always looked young in every situation I've ever been in. So it's yeah. not just been this one. I, I've constantly, people, people are, are, I can sort of get the thing where I talk and people realize how much young, how much older I am than they thought. But if I don't say anything, they go on thinking that I'm, I am a teenager. Right. And I think actually there's a lot of queer women who kind of fall into this androgynous looking, you know, you think of like Tegan and Sarah, the mm-hmm. band, they're almost 40, but you know, there are people who would see them on the street and think they were teenagers. And uh, yeah. so I think that that's always been my experience. But in academia, my, my current position, not only do I look young, but most of the people in my department are, you know, minimum 10 years older than me. So there yeah. are very few of us who are kind of in our 30s. Most people are, are older. And so, yeah, I do feel like I need to really bring my A game. But at the same time, you know, being young does have does have some benefits in terms of my ability to connect with students. They don't see me in a sort of parental capacity toward them. I'm kind of midway between their age and their parents' age. And so while I feel like my students are on the whole very respectful, they're also more likely to come and have a chat with me during office hours about what they're thinking about doing with things in their lives and ask me advice about things. Which I, I think, and that's also, I think, true for, for female professors. And, and a lot of people feel that that's a, you know, a time suck that takes away from research time and, you know, women end up yeah. being in these sort of caring roles. But I've done a lot of my work outside of academia has been with uh, teenagers, uh, queer teenagers, teens who are doing writing things, uh, teens from various disadvantaged backgrounds. And so that's actually something that I'm quite happy to do. I really like that I'm teaching the first years and I, I like sort of guiding them as they figure out what they want to do in college and figuring out the complications that you face as, as you enter enter adulthood. And I think that looking young and, and being younger than a lot of people in academia makes me well-placed for that. And yeah. I'm actually, I, I think it, it'll be weird to, for me when I'm quite a bit older and I'm trying to figure mm-hmm. out if that's still a role that I fill. You mentioned that there's a large LGBT population on campus right now for students. Mm -hmm. So the level of support then is high there, correct? Yes, yes. Would you say that that's changed since you were a student? I know you were in a different location, but are you seeing more support in general? Well, so it's difficult to say because here I think the support's always been high. And I also went to a university, you know, not accidentally, where that was quite high. Um, But just sort of, I think the students are coming in a little bit different as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're, from my observations of, of, of teens here and, and in Michigan even, and, you know, New Zealand as well, I think the students are having more exposure to different sorts of ideas. And it, it, even in high school, you know, when I, when I was a kid, it was sort of, the, you know, we're going to be tolerant of all types. And now yeah. it's more like it's, we've moved on from tolerance to more of acceptance and inclusion. And also, I, I don't know, I, I find the students increasingly empathetic. Um, in a right. way that I don't know that that we were. But in terms of the campus support, my university is very good. So my, my wife interviewed at a lot of different universities when she was on the job market. And at least the second time around, she we went to Singapore and then she had to do it again. She was open about the fact that she was married and had a child and she was queer because she actually wanted to make sure that she didn't end up in a place where that wasn't going to be okay. And right. so she ended up hearing a lot about the different student organizations and uh, support for queer students and faculty. And she was impressed that uh, that's becoming something that's on, on the radar of everybody from the little liberal arts schools to the big universities. And even you know some of the religious schools that she interviewed with were a lot more onto it than she expected in that department. What would you say about the job search as far as being a queer person? For job search candidates, uh, usually, mm-hmm. you know, in their last year of grad school, 
there's kind of this wisdom that says you should apply as widely as you can. There's only so many jobs and there's lots and lots of you. So make sure you get your name out there. This is not as much true for lecturers. I'm thinking more of uh, tenure track candidates. But I think that one thing that would, you know, if we're thinking of things that would help LGBT people within academia, one thing is for advisors to be aware of. I think by the time your, your advisee gets to their job candidate year, you may know that they're queer. If you do, thinking of ways that you can give them information that's relevant to that identity. And for example, if you have a student who is, you know, in a queer partnership, you might not suggest that they apply to that job in Abu Dhabi. That might not be a good fit for them. Right. If they If they push back and they say, I don't want to apply to these jobs in this part of the country, don't give them a hard time about it. Say, I understand that, right. you know, your family has these specific needs. And that, and that might be true, not just for the LGBT students. I have a friend who's a Jewish economist, and he said that mm-hmm. the places in the country that I didn't really want to live were some of the places that he didn't really want to live, and that his advisors maybe weren't as sensitive to that as they could have been. There are parts of the country that are just not safe for all of us. And so having this right. attitude that your advisees need to need to just suck it up and live wherever, that's not necessarily, it's not just sucking it up. It's, it's putting your family in particular dangers. And from the employer's perspective, one thing that, that my wife encountered that was really wonderful was she was interviewing with a school that was, a, it was a small liberal arts school, it was a religious school, and they had a, a dean of diversity who was a queer man who they put her in touch with, and he was outside of the hiring committee and um, had, you know, was not reporting back to anybody. And she could ask him questions about what kind of campus is this going to be like for me? What are the students like? What are the faculty like? You know, in what ways will I be accepted or not accepted? And putting those sorts of measures in place, again, benefits not just the queer candidates, that also benefits really any candidate who wants to be able to ask a question and not have it come back to bite them. And I think those sorts of things ensure that everyone's safer and there's better fits. And I know that, you know, for some fields, that's going to be more or less applicable because if there are only three jobs for 10, you know, 10,000 people, then you know, nobody wants to be picky. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that, that people can be supportive of making sure people are in good fits. And, and also because if universities want their faculty to stay, and if they want to have a, a diverse faculty that's not just junior level, but that progresses through the ranks and then even enters the administration so that we have an administration where we actually have diverse people running it and bringing their perspectives to it, then making sure that you have a good fit in that way is really important. What about the idea of mentors for people new to the job? So I, I think mentorship is, is is really important. One thing that I think can be troublesome is that given that within academia, we, we don't have enough diverse representation, whether it be racial or sexual minorities or, or any, any of these sorts of categories, you want to make sure that you don't overtax the senior people from those different demographic groups and say, oh, you are, you know, our, you are our black faculty member. You will serve on this committee as a diversity person, this committee right. as a diversity person. And also we need you to mentor this new person because we just hired a black person. And that's not, you right. know, that's not going to help their career either. Right. So making sure that mentorship <laughs> is, um, is done in a way that's fair for everyone. But then I, I definitely have appreciated mentorship programs that I've gotten to participate in. And I think they've been really valuable for me. The term ally gets used a lot. What exactly is an ally to you? Uh, there's lots of definitions, but I guess if I'm, I talked about how I think the students are becoming more empathetic, I think that yeah. um, part of being an ally to me is being able to recognize that there are other perspectives besides yours and recognizing that all the time, like constantly thinking about how someone else might encounter this situation, this space, 
because you know being an ally spans all kinds of different identities you know am mm-hmm. i an ally to someone who's approaching the situation in a wheelchair am i an ally to a person who's approaching right. the situation and you didn't go to high school you know, different all these sort of different different things um and so i think that's i don't know if you could say allyship is a skill but it's certainly a efficiency that you can you can build up is the ability to notice and care when something doesn't include everyone and then and then fighting until it does so i guess mm-hmm. that would be my my definition of an ally. So how would you categorize an ally as far as faculty member? I think that uh, for faculty members, as I said, at at the University of Vermont, we have a a big queer student population. And one thing that that I've noticed here is that we have queer students and queer faculty represented across all of the different colleges. So I went to the, uh, the queer graduation event in May. And we had students from biology and from engineering, all graduating queer students. And there was also an award ceremony. And there were students and also faculty who were being recognized uh, for their contributions to the community. And and I was really impressed with the ways that uh, different faculty members managed to be allies in disciplines that you wouldn't necessarily expect to, you know, to have opportunities to show that allyship. So um, I was on the awards committee and we had, I think, nine different nominations for faculty member in the fisheries department. And I was really impressed to see the number of students who appreciated the way that this that this uh, professor managed to find ways to show her to show her support for the community. So a lot of students wrote about how how this professor would make sure that the, when it, when a student were to uh, make a response that had a sort of heteronormative bent to it or made assumptions about even just like the the gender of, of a person in a certain situation, this professor would really gently correct the students and put them back on the, on the right path and use language that was inclusive. On a mentorship level, she was talking to students about they're moving into the National Park Service, how they might, as a queer person, move through that system in a way that would be safe for them. And all of these ways that within fisheries, which I'd never thought of as a place that sort of thing would come up, because you expect there to be an English department, we have queer books, and there's plays in the theater department, and there's sort of these these different places where you think of the queer students as congregating, and, and that's that's not true anymore. And that's something that I, that I really love seeing, that queer students are, are across all the different disciplines and are out and are involved, and that the faculty are responding to that and nurturing that and making sure that students in every school, you know, from engineering to business, are demonstrating for their students the importance of being an ally. And so even if you're in fisheries, you're not off the hook. You have to, uh, sorry, um, you have to make sure that you're modeling that allyship for your students and finding opportunities no matter what your discipline is. So what do you think are the most important fights the LGBT movement is dealing with right now on a large scale? I'm going to name a few. Trans people, especially trans people of color, are being killed all over the U.S. every you know, every year. Um, I don't know what the current count is, but especially trans women of color, are mm-hmm. there's probably 10 or 12 or 15 at this point this year who have been killed, yeah. who've been, who have been murdered in the U.S. So that's something that I'm very concerned about. The population of homeless teens in the U.S., 40% of homeless teens are queer. I mean, it's not a surprise if you think about teens who are thrown out of their homes or who run away when they're not accepted. And so it's a huge, huge problem. In prisons, similarly, especially, again, among queer people of color, violence in prisons, um, just the 
the incarceration rates for people of color and queer people of color across the US. So I guess those would kind of be my big ones. I think that the fights that we took on first, we took on first because the people who had the money to fund the organizations that were going to lobby them, these were the things that were most immediately affecting their lives. And so we got things like gay marriage. And that's something that I benefited from and that that I am part of the socioeconomic class that that I'm talking about that, that funds the HRC and that funds the other, the other organizations. But if that's the way that we're going to go through and pick our issues in order, then we're going to leave the most marginalized people in our marginalized community till last. And that's not acceptable to me. When you mentioned the homeless teen population, I was wondering if you have looked into geographically, are there more concentrated areas in the United States where that is occurring? I know, for example, that in the South, there's a large population of, of homeless queer teens in Atlanta. A lot of queer teens uh, who, who leave home, that's where they go. Okay. There are a couple of shelters um, that are specifically for queer teens around the States. There's one in the Detroit area. I think there's one in Atlanta. There's one in, in New York. Definitely one in Los Angeles um, for queer homeless youth. But again, the number of beds available compared to the number of, of youth who are, who are homeless is um, just a drop in the bucket. We need a cultural shift that's part and parcel of the entire problem. But on a smaller level, having more shelters, having more amenities, even if people don't want to stay at the shelters or isn't room, you know, having having food programs and having, you know, an awareness amongst um, law enforcement and, and the sorts of uh, charities that work with homeless populations about the, the particular needs of these of these youth. How does the word get out um, that there is even a place to go? They have an online presence, um, all of them. People who, who go to, you know, various cities may or may not be going for the shelter. They may be going for the community that's there or just because mm-hmm. it you know, seems like the nearest friendly place. Or maybe they have right. family there that's more accepting. But you do end up with certain parts of the country that a lot of people migrate toward. I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk with us again. Yes, it was really nice talking with you. And that wraps up the interview with Professor Holly Painter from the University of Vermont. Make sure to check out the show notes for links on Holly's work. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Again, this is Heather saying thanks for listening and stay nasty. Last but not least, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Please, if you have the possibility, then rate and review us because that is how other people find us and we all need more nasty in our lives, right? We also have a Facebook page, which you can like. We, we are on Twitter. The handle is at Pod. We are on Instagram and we also have a Facebook page group where you can discuss all the things that we talk about in our episodes and where you can also contact us if you want to tell us something you know constructive criticism feedback or if you have suggestions for future episodes please pop us a line on facebook or write us an email the gmail is she who persisted podcast at gmail.com we have a web page which is www.shewhopersisted.com you can also listen to our episodes on a homepage. Thank you for listening. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.